Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week, I'm going to kick it back over to my co-host, Randall Jacobs, for a little something different for you. Randall's interviewing sculptor, trail builder, and Mendocino cycling stalwart, Nick Taylor, in an exploration on how the bike became interwoven in one artist's life. Before I pass the mic over to Randall, I need to thank this week's sponsor, The Feed. The Feed is the largest online marketplace for sports nutrition. They've got all your favorite sports nutrition brands in one place, so if you've developed an affinity like I have for certain brands, you can hop on over to the feed and mix and match so you get everything you need in one delivery. I was just visiting thefeed.com before recording this intro, and I remembered in addition to all the nutritional brands that they carry, they also carry a wide variety of training gear. You might remember a couple episodes back when we were focusing on recovery we talked about foam rollers, we talked about Theraguns, we talked about pneumatic leg compression tools. I think we talked about the Power Dot. Actually, all these things are available at thefeed.com. So in addition to getting your nutrition handled, you can work on your recovery like I've been doing. And finally, I wanted to mention again the Feed Formulas. The Feed Formulas are the world's first daily supplement pouch for athletes created in conjunction with Dr. Kevin Sprouse from the EF Pro Cycling Team. They feature best-in-class branded supplements, never generics. You get personalized recommendation based on your needs as an athlete, and they're all delivered in a convenient daily pouch. We've got a limited-time special offer of 50% off on your first order of the feed formula by simply going to thefeed.com slash thegravelride. Remember, that's thefeed.com slash thegravelride. With that said, I'm going to hand it over to my co-host, Randall Jacobs, and his interview with Nick Taylor. Nick, I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on, Randall. So uh, before we dive in, let's give listeners a bit of background. Who are you? Where are you from? What matters to you? My name's Nick Taylor. I'm up here in Fort Bragg, California. That's about 180 miles north of San Francisco uh, along the coast, fairly remote area. I'm a sculptor. And uh, a big bicycle advocate, as well as running a trail crew, building trails out here on the Mendocino coast. Yeah. And as somebody who has been to your workshop, I can say, well, one, the area is quite beautiful. And uh, two, the space in which you create some of the things that we'll be talking about and linking to in the notes is a pretty special place. So tell us a bit about your relationship to the bicycle. How did it get started? How has it evolved over time? Well, you know, I think we all probably started riding bikes when we were kids, and, and I certainly did that on a gravel road in, in rural Ohio. So I had some experience as a kid, then there was a big lapse, and it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I picked the bicycle back up and started to use it again. And that was, uh, I, I don't know what really, what the impetus was for getting back on a bike, but I wanted to do some exploring, and I guess that just seemed like a good way to to go about it. And I bought myself a, an old Schwinn Latour for 80 bucks. And uh, I was staying with my grandmother at that point up in Ohio. And I started doing some riding and the rides, you know, 
slowly became longer and longer. And I, I decided, well, you know what? I want to go do some touring. And so that led to a bit, a little, a little bit of touring on that the tour prior to graduate school back in the early eighties. So tell us about some of the early tours. What was that like? Well, I was prepping to go to graduate school and I really wanted to get out in between visiting one school and another. And I bought a Greyhound pass. It was good for 30 days and pulled a map of the U.S. out and closed my eyes and put my finger down on wherever it came. And, and the first place was I got out in Kadoka, South Dakota at mm -hmm. uh, midnight at a gas station. And, you know, rode the next day through, you know, from Kadoka through the Badlands and into uh, Rapid City. And I didn't have a particularly good experience in Rapid City. So I pulled the map out again, closed my eyes and fingered another place on the map and got out in Shelby, Montana. And I had a great time from there. So, you know, I rode from Shelby across the Rocky Mountains and through Glacier National Park, which was just extraordinary. And then down to Spokane, Washington, at which point I had to create my bike up and head, head to Davis, California to go look at the school there. Oh, wow. So that was a, essentially coming off after a month of kind of dirt bagging, camping out or how, what were your, what were your accommodations along the route? Camping. I mean, everything, camping. everything I needed was, was, uh, on the bike. So, so you found a shower before you had your interview? Yeah. Knocked uh, some of the stink off. So now you're in Davis, and this is a program in what area? So it was a MFA program for Master of Fine Arts, a graduate school. It was back in the early 80s, and I don't know where it is now, but it was a leading school for the arts. It rivaled Yale, our graduate department. And so it was, I got there and they had a very open format, which I much enjoyed. Everything I was looking at on the East Coast was a very structured format. And uh, I was done with that. I'd had five years of that at the University of Tennessee, and I was m mostly just looking for studio time. And that's what I got in, in Davis. And I also so, got to be around people that were pretty well renowned, you know, which was a new experience for me. I mean, I had people like Manuel Neary and Robert Arneson and Wayne Tebow and Roy DeForest were all teaching there. So I got exposure to all these professional artists that I had experienced experienced before. And was the writing community as developed then as it is now? Right now, Davis is very much known as like having great bike infrastructure and UC Davis has a top cycling team and so on. It was definitely a big thing there. Bike culture was big in Davis. And, uh, and, and that was a new thing too. I mean, most people, certainly all the students, and I think back then there were 16,000 students, they were getting around on bikes and that was very cool. And there was a lot of road biking going on out there too, which I participated in. You know, I got myself a, a Miata. I forget what model it was. It was their touring bike, which is a pretty mm -hmm. nice bike. Though when I was buying it, it was the first new bike I'd ever had. And the guys kept telling me it was too big a frame. It was too big a frame. And it's like I, I didn't listen to them. Should have. But, you know, I rode it for a number, number of years. It did me okay. But I, I realized in hindsight it was, it was too big. From there, I, I moved to the East Bay and lived in Oakland and Point Richmond primarily. I mean, there were little, little stints in San Francisco and Berkeley, but primary residents were in Point Richmond and Oakland. 
And what was it like back then versus what it, what it's like at this time? Well, there weren't as many people and it was a little cheaper to live, you know, and as an artist, you're, <laughs> you're always trying to live on the cheap, right? So, I mean, your goal is to, to be in your studio as much as you can and work as you have to to cover your bills. So it was cheaper, you know, it wasn't wasn't as affluent as it is now, you know, riding, riding, you know, was entirely different than it was in, in Davis. Everything out in Davis was flat land. The only thing mm-hmm. you really had to contend with there was the wind, which could be quite daunting at times, though. Anytime you had the wind to your back, if it, the, the conditions were just right, you'd be in this little envelope, this little bubble with the wind to your back where there was absolutely no resistance. And it was a remarkable thing to experience because the only thing you would hear is the pedaling, the chain moving through mm. the, the cranks and across the cassette. And, and other than that, and there was no, no resistance. It just like, you just flew across the landscape and that was pretty extraordinary. You didn't get to experience that when you were in Oakland. I mean, you had the hills to contend with and climbing up to, to uh, skyline drive and running or riding the ridge along through there and certainly more traffic. So I recall you mentioning like over a decade in the Bay Area? 20 years. Yeah, was 20 in years. The, in the, yep, in the Bay Area for 20 years. It was a good experience. We had, when I was in Point Richmond, we had a wonderful studio out there that, that was a LiveWorks situation. It was, uh, it was an illegal live-in, you know, it, but... We were, it was, it was such a stunning location. I mean, you were a seven acre parcel surrounded by park on the San Francisco Bay that it was pretty extraordinary. It's just the kind of place you don't typically see in this day and age. I mean, everything's been developed now. Um, yeah. High end condos and lofts. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we lived there. It was one of my last places to stay and the, the property was sold. The park system bought the property that we were living in and they wanted to incorporate it to the rest of the park. So we all got the boot and I didn't want it to be a renter anymore. I wanted to buy something. So through a bit of searching, we found this place up here in Fort Bragg and made the move, even though we didn't know anybody up here. And that was just a parcel of land at the time, right? That's true. It's, it was a small parcel, it's just over two and a half acres fully wooded, which is what I really wanted to avoid. I really wanted to buy something I could remodel (laughs) and at least have utilities in, you know, water and power, but we had nothing. It was a fully wooded property lot. And uh, so Amy, my wife and I, we spent a year of weekends coming up to the property from the Bay Area and logging the property ourselves. Cleared about 200 trees. And some of these are pretty good sized trees. And we did that with an old forklift that I bought and an old international harvester that I had with a big PTO winch on the front. So we spent a year of clearing, clearing the land. Then it's, then it went idle for a little bit or the work went idle for a little bit as I was involved in a project down in the Bay area that kept me, kept me tied up for a number of years. Well, and that, that's not just any project. So maybe give uh, listeners a little bit of uh, a background on that, on what that project was and your involvement with it. This was, this was a, uh, Cloudgate, it's more commonly known as the Bean. It's a big piece of sculpture in the city of Chicago, which is now part of part of their landscape. It's an icon to the city. It's a it's a sixty foot long, roughly thirty five foot high, forty five foot wide, perfectly smooth mirror finish sculpture that's in the shape of a bean or something like yeah. a bean, and it's it's a pretty remarkable thing. So. I was involved with that for four and a half years, uh, first working on the on equipment we had to build for fabricating it, 
and then doing some of the prototyping and then a lot of the fabrication of it. And then eventually back in Chicago for almost a year to see its installation and finish. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, I strongly recommend that you uh, look it up. For me, it's just this really surreal thing just plopped in this park in Chicago reflecting the skyline. It almost looks like CGI because it's too perfect given the scale of the thing. And you and I have talked about the tolerances involved and so on. And like think about just the weight of it and how that just wants to distort the structure and the material. What was your role specifically? You were the crew lead or the project lead? On site, I would have been the supervisor overseeing all yeah. of its installation. And I was working in Chicago with the local iron workers, iron worker 63, local 63, which is a great group of fellows. I very much enjoyed working with them. And you know, this, the bean was, was a prototype. It was like, nobody had ever had ever built anything like that. And it was a, uh, combination of old world you know, hands-on kind of technology and computer generated imagery. You know, it's like you couldn't do it without being able to work with your hands, but you couldn't have done it without a computer because of all the tolerances that were involved. And we had to have a computer set up a piece of equipment that would scan each piece and make sure it was within tolerance of what the computer model was. And the tolerance yeah. for each piece is like a 32nd of an inch. So... <laughs> You know, and then yeah. you have 168 of those to put together and the tolerances are, are no less stringent. Well, and you have this thing that's mirror polished, so it doesn't just have to look good on its own. This mirror polish is going to reveal any sort of imperfection in the surface whatsoever and distort the image. It absolutely does. And reflecting the skyline, the cityscape you know, with all the structures that are running plumb and horizontal. That grid work shows up, shows any sort of mistake in in the reflection of, on the piece. I hope to make it out there in person at some point before too long to, to check it out, but just seeing the imagery and some videos of it, it's, it's quite an achievement. I mean, it's one thing to design such a thing and imagine such a thing, but there's so much about the execution of that that is really a wonder. So well done there. And that's not the only large scale uh, <laughs> sculpture you've been involved with that is uh, probably uh, you know, pretty well known. There's, there's another one that was outside the, the uh, Mountain Bike Hall of Fame for some time. You want to talk about that and, and how that came about? Sure. So well, that's still there. And that's, that's something that sort of, you know, back in 2011, up here on the coast, we were trying to have a little, put together a little fat tire festival to sort of open up the area to people from surrounding areas. Let them know that we had some trail riding up here. There was some stuff happening in the way of mountain biking. And someone asked me to build some signage for this, for, you know, to put out there to advertise this. And, you know, I'm a sculptor, right? I don't do flat stuff. So I've sort of scratched my head for a few days and, wandered around the property and, you know, I realized I had these two big tractor tires sitting here off of a John Deere tractor. And I thought, you know what, I'll just make a big bike. I mean, that, that works as advertising as well as anything else. And at that point I was riding, riding Ibis Mojo, one of their carbon full suspension bikes. And I thought I just modeled, modeled the big one after that. So, you know, I, I took a photo of the bike and put it on an opaque, projector and projected it proper scale on the walls here and did, you know, layout of, of, uh, the frame and transferred that to a piece of plywood and cut that out and started building to that frame and slowly went at it. So, and it was through working on this thing, you know, 
And I got to know many of the people over at IBIS. And my wife, again, Amy, my wife, she contacted Scott Nickel uh, and sent him some photos, which I knew he was like, great. I got some boneheads out here in the woods that think they're making sort of an <laughs> IBIS bike, right? And because the photo shows two big tractor tires with a plywood cutout on the frame. And it's like, okay, what are these knuckleheads up to? And, but she continued <laughs> to communicate with him and, you know, send him photos as updates. And, and, you know, as I was nearing completion of this thing, he thought, okay, maybe this is actually going to turn out to be something kind of cool. And tail end of me working on the, and it's called Ibis Maximus, tail end of working on Ibis Maximus. Scott asked me one day, it's like, so Nick, what's your day job that, you know, you're able to do this. And at that point I just sent him a photo of the bean. And he's like, oh, okay, carry on. So anyhow, it was <laughs> through making this big bike that I got to know Scott and then, then many of the other partners down there in Ibis in, in Santa Cruz. So all of which are a great bunch of people. So I've been very fortunate to get to know them. And how did it end up at the uh, Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in uh, Fairfax, California? We were trying to figure out where to put it. It must have been Scott because <laughs> Ibis eventually bought it. Because it was sitting up here, not really doing anything. It was sort of lawn art. And I believe it was probably Scott that was looking to place it. And of course, he knows all the old guard down there in in Fairfax. And uh, Joe Breeze, who runs the place, is, you know, he, I believe he mentored Scott for a little while early on. So they, they know one another. And so I think Scott set this up and then segued over to Joe Breeze. So as somebody who runs a small bicycle brand, I can just say like, what a coup that must be to actually have one of your bikes, especially something very iconic. Like that's a very distinctive looking frame. If if some bozo in the woods up in Mendocino County ever wants to, you know, make a, make a giant version of one of our bikes, I'd be, you know, happy to oblige. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> okay. I'll keep that in mind. So, all right. So now you're, you're in Mendocino. You've come back from doing the bean. You've cleared your lands. What do you end up doing from there? So back from Chicago, foundations in for the house by then. I mean, it'd been in maybe a couple of years by that point. Came back and, and started building our house and studio in earnest. And our house and studio are actually two old timber frame barns that we dismantled back in Ohio. They're 100 plus years old. They're all mortise and tenon wooden pegs holding them together. Something we had gone back in 2000 and dismantled in Ohio. And when you say we, you mean like you and your family, yeah? Yeah, Amy and my kids who were 12 and 14 at that point and... And then Amy's parents and her brother came out for a week. And I had a good friend of mine that came out with his new girlfriend from Manhattan to give a hand for a week. And then I had a buddy that, that we paid to come out there for the three weeks that it actually took us to, to uh, dismantle this. So that was a great project. We had a lot of fun. And for my kids, it was the first time for them being back in the Midwest. And it's sort of familiar stomping grounds to me. You know, I'm not from that particular area where we, where we dismantled the barns, but I am from Northeast Ohio and lightning bugs are all, all familiar. My kids got to see that sort of stuff and they got to play with fireworks for the first time. And again, you know, the, the space up there is, is one of the more special spaces I've ever visited. You had me up there, I think three, four years ago. And the home is beautiful. And that's one of the barns, right? And then the back section, the workshop, it makes me think of Craig Calfee's shop 
south of Santa Cruz or in the Santa Cruz mm. area. It's another one of these places where you just have tools and projects everywhere. And it has a certain degree of organization, but a sufficient amount of, of, <laughs> of chaos. And you can tell it's, it's like a place where a lot of experimentation happens, a lot of creativity happens. And just the number of specialized tools that you have, many of which uh, you've made, it's really, really cool to see. And you occasionally hold exhibits up there too, right? Open studio from time to time. You know, I'm hoping to do yeah. that again this year. If COVID actually is settling down, you can open the place back up again. So got lots of new work going on and it's good to invite people in, let them see the work that I'm working on, but also let them see the space that it's actually created in too. Because I think that that puts a different spin on things and gives people a little more insight to what's going on. Yeah. And in fact, there's a, you have a video on your website. Uh, remind me the, the URL for your website. So website is jnicktaylor.com. Instagram is a good place to see what's what's current. And it's the same, same jnicktaylor. Well, the website does have this really nice video that shows you in your studio working on some of your pieces. And then there's a number of uh, your pieces put on a, a pan so that you can get a 3D view of it. And you work in you know different various materials, metal and wood. You work on things that can fit. Uh, what are your smaller pieces and what are your bigger pieces? And talk Small. actually, let's you do that. Talk a bit about like the type of work that you do and the inspiration for it. So I'm working in metal or wood. I rarely combine the two materials. So my studio is kind of divided up in half. One end I'm doing metal work on, the other end I'm doing woodwork in. All the pieces these days are pretty much inspired by nature, you know, my outdoor environment. They don't necessarily make reference to any one given any one given thing but probably a lot of different elements of what one might experience if they were out in nature. So the work is pretty organic. The metalwork, I'm, I'm doing a lot of welding, forging, grinding to get the shapes. Their scale can range anywhere from about two feet in height to, I'm working on something right now, it's about seven feet. So some, you know, some stuff's tabletop in size, so other pieces are certainly floor standing pieces. Larger, you know, the largest wood pieces. I mean, the wood pieces are all tend to be a little larger. You know, they stand, you know, maybe four feet up to about nine feet. They also are very organic, but some of them are carved from single pieces of wood and other pieces are, are a composite of pieces that are glued up and then carved back into. So all of them are very you know, hands-on, very labor-intensive. I'm getting three to four pieces done a year. A larger piece, whether it be metal or wood, can take me 10 months to a year alone to, to work on. So a lot of handwork. And I just haven't figured out a way to, to expedite that. You know, I keep looking, keep trying to figure out ways to <laughs> move faster. But it always seems to come back to handwork. Well, and just looking on, you know, at some of the imagery, I've seen a few of these pieces in person and there are pieces that are very clearly flowing with the contours of the wood that you're working with. But then there's also some vision that's in, imposed on it to some degree as well. Some of your metal work, there's pieces that for me look like contorted musical instruments and hmm. every angle tells a different story and evokes a, a different, you know, set of feelings and, and images. It's very abstract and very interesting looking at your work it really draws one in to explore it from different angles and that's really important you know when i was a kid and in school art school one of the things that was hammered into me was 
any given piece of sculpture should invite you to walk all the way around it and explore it. You shouldn't be able to stand on one side of it and know what's happening on the other side. So it should shift and change and draw you in and draw you around the given piece. So let's bring the bike back into the the conversation. Mm -hmm. How does the the bike fit into your process or your day-to-day or week-to-week routine? So these days, I'm fortunate enough to be in the studio four days a week, full-time, uninterrupted. But I can only be in the studio for those four days, and then I'm like maxed out. I can't put any more time in. I've got to put my head in a different space. And so I spend two days on the bike out in the woods. So here in Fort Bragg, Mendocino area, we've got we've got a really nice trail system. And then we also have unlimited number of gravel roads. I mean, much of our, our mountain biking is in Jackson Demonstration State Forest. If I'm not mistaken, they have a minimum of 300 miles of gravel road in there, right? And then there are all these entities that butt up against Jackson Demonstration State Forest. I mean, you have Big River State Park, you've got Conservation Fund, and and then north of Jackson, you have Lime Timber. Now, Lime Timber and, and Conservation Fund land, you have to have permission to be on their property. But I think Conservation Fund certainly gives that pretty readily. And I've never heard of anybody having an issue on Lime Timber. And Lime Timber is 150,000 acres, right? Jackson Demonstration State Forest is, is just under 50,000 acres. Big River State Park is like 7,500 acres and and Conservation Fund, I may be mistaken, but I think they're 30 to 40,000 acres. And all of these places have gravel roads running around on them, right? I'm sure you could chain this stuff all together and, and get up into Usall, which is about an hour north of here. And, and you've got <laughs> unlimited resource up there for, for riding gravel roads as well. And you're involved in a lot of the trail building up there as well. That's my other form of sculpting, sculpting the landscape. Since I've been a little kid, was a little kid, and working outdoors, it's part of my core. It's part of what I really love doing. So I, it's like I run a trail crew up here, work and, and we're building, maintaining and building trails in Jackson Demonstration State Forest. And we're doing that in conjunction with CAL FIRE. And CAL FIRE are the stewards, the managers of the forest. So we've got a 10-year relationship that we've developed with them and, and it's going strong. You know, we've currently currently got some projects going. Everything these days is being hand dug. Though two years ago, we had, had a new experience with getting some trails machine built. We got a two and a quarter mm. mile trail machine built that we were able to lay out and, and uh, through a, a sponsor, uh, One Track Mind, better known as OTM, who funded it, we were able to build this new trail that connected a bunch of other stuff together and made for a better trail system. So for listeners who want to explore this area, want to learn more about it and and get a toe in the water, what resources are available? What clubs are available to get a handle on you know what you're describing, which is this massive amount of space that you could very easily get lost in and not necessarily find the best trails? So the trail work that I'm doing is is under or with Mendocino Coast Cyclists, with the local cycle group. I can be contacted through them or the club president. Dan Sweet could be contacted and we can set you up. We can be found on Facebook under Mendocino Coast Cyclists. That's probably the easiest way. I'm sort of thinking this through, I'm thinking aloud. And we have group rides. So that have been closed during COVID, but I think they're beginning to open those back up. 
And people can join these group rides and they typically are happening three times a week, Tuesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. But we also, as a listserv, if you're a club member, this is probably the best way to get any sort of information is if you join the club, you can get on a listserv and you can get all the chatter that's going on and you get notifications of rides. You can ask questions if you're trying to find, find your way around for the first time. Very cool. So before we finish up, you've mentioned your wife, Amy, and you know, Sounds like a pretty extraordinary woman to have supported everything from buying of a plot of land in the middle of nowhere. Well, not the middle of nowhere, in a very beautiful area, but a good distance from the city to going out with you and the kids and tearing down some barns and so on. Tell us about that dynamic. Well, Amy's a pretty extraordinary person and she'd been game to go on a, a lot of adventures and they're adventures that we've developed together. She's a brilliant person. She's very capable. She tolerates me. She has her own business, a land use permit agent up here on the coast. She's the go-to person if you want to develop anything in the coastal zone. Clearly cares about the work that you do in doing things like reaching out to people like Scott Nichols over at IBIS to get yeah. attention on your projects yeah. and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss while we're on the pod today? I think that pretty well does it. I mean, please, please visit the, the website and, and Instagram and let me know what you think. And if you happen to be up this way in Mendocino, Fort Bragg area, give a shout. So we love showing people around and the riding up here is pretty extraordinary. And if you want to, you know, if you like being out in the woods, doing mountain biking, you can, you can go for all day rides and not see anybody up here at all you know, if, if you're riding during the week, which is pretty extra extraordinary to have the woods to yourself. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Well, we will be sure to get some links in the show notes for this episode for anyone looking to connect with you or to learn more about the uh, Mendocino Trail Network. Nick, it's been great catching up with you. It's been some time. And as I mentioned, you know, have been looking forward to it for, for quite a while. And I uh, really appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Randall. And this is really nice, and it's good to spend a little time with you as well. I don't see you often enough these days. We'll try to rectify that later on this year. I'll make a trip up the coast. All righty. You take care, man. Be well. Be well. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that interview between Randall and Nick Taylor. Be sure to check out Nick's extraordinary work at jnicktaylor.com or on Instagram at jnicktaylor. We'll have links for these as well as the Ibis Maximus and CloudGate in the show notes. If you're interested in connecting with myself or Randall, please visit us at theridership.com. That's www.theridership.com. Join our global cycling community. Everything's free, and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of the interactions with your fellow gravel athletes and also your hosts here at the Gravel Ride Podcast. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can visit us at buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. Additionally, ratings and reviews are hugely helpful. And with that, until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. <laughs> <laughs>